welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about first-person shooters. This is kind of a dense topic with a lot to talk about, but we're going to be focusing most of our attention on the issues surrounding the first-person perspective and the use of weapons as the player's primary means of interaction. To help me discuss the ramifications of such a broad topic is a man who's lived his whole life in the first-person perspective, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, Steve. Thanks. You're quite welcome, sir. How's life? It's going well. It's going well. Um, I have to go buy a car today, so I'm not really looking forward to that. Why? What's wrong with your current car? Nothing. The lease is ending, so I just have to... I think I'm just going to buy a, a used version of the thing I already have, or just buy the car that I have now. I haven't decided. I, I don't have to do it today, but I'm going to go test drive a couple things and figure it out. Now, I just I just recently read that you're supposed to do that shit at the end of the month, not the very beginning of the month. I like to live dangerously. <laughs> I I uh, I suppose so. Uh, well, also joining us is a uh, another great guest. We've had a, a, a ton of great guests so far, but we're just going to keep that trend going. Uh, he's a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona. He studies links between video games and aggression, and his work has been published in various science journals. Uh, please help me welcome Corey Pavlich. Corey, how you doing, man? Good. How about yourself? Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, man! Thank you for joining us. You know, one of the things I uh, I've really liked about doing this podcast so far is we've got to speak with uh, people from various backgrounds relating to to video games, and uh, and we've had some really great discussions. So I'm excited to uh, get your take on some of the things that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, but what what is your background in video games? Um, do you have an education in it? Have you worked with video games? You know, where where are you coming at video games from? I mean, I've been playing video games my entire life. I remember receiving my first uh, Super Nintendo when I was a kid, and I was blown away by Super Mario World, and I remember that back then my parents actually being better at me than video games, so those that 16-bit. Uh, I've been playing it since the Nintendo Entertainment System, um, You know, playing the early games like Super Mario Brothers, Mega Man, stuff like that. Uh, that kind of that kind of stemmed me to work into a little bit more of the educational side of video games. So once they started offering video game classes especially within my you know my profession in communication looking at how video games can communicate different sort of elements to the player how the player can now with the concept of virtual reality and you know all the input devices that we currently have how they're able to communicate to the video game how various uh how various agencies promote their video games how there's been a lot of video game flack received so uh, when the era of Mortal Kombat, so why why people think that video games are this all all encompassing entity that causes people to go crazy and commit violent gratuitous acts of violence, uh, and then you know just being able to work specifically with video games from a communication standpoint. So running my own experiments with video games, violence and aggression, and then being able to uh, work with the intelligence advanced research projects activity. Uh, creating video games to help government agencies uh, mitigate bias in decision making. Now, was there a specific uh, event or a, a specific moment that prompted you to pursue video games from an academic standpoint? Uh, I, I wouldn't say specific one. I would say that the specific genre or the specific thing that made me want to study video games was just the amount of negative feedback that it gets from the media. So you, you see people saying like, Violent video games cause people to commit gratuitous acts of violence. Violent video games are the reason that 
you have various violent acts in our society happen. And, and I, I wanted to take the stand against that. You know, I, I think that I, I thought that at the time, those types of things are possible, but it's not the end all be all thing that makes people violent. Now, in your research, have you found that there is some some sort of link between uh, playing, I guess we'll call them, quote unquote, violent video games and then violent or aggressive behavior? Uh, so there, it, that's a very complex answer. So in my current in my current research that I'm working on, I'm, I'm looking at a specific game called Hatred. And once you get into things called moral disengagement cues, uh, which essentially have the player look at violence and moral disengagement, it allows them to disengage or to withdraw from that violent act. So for instance, if we look at video games such as Halo or, or anything with some sort of extraterrestrial life form that you're committing an act of violence against, that disengages the audience from that violent act. I mean, if you think about it, here in actual reality, we, we don't commit violent acts against aliens or extraterrestrial life. Uh, you don't, you don't, when, when you kill somebody in real life, it's not like you get a little, a little badge or a little achievement above your head, like you killed 10,000 things or you've done this. So all those types of cues disengage people from the violent acts that they're committing. So in my personal research, I'm looking at how if we add engagement cues, so getting people to actually look at the moral ramifications of committing those gratuitous acts of violence, what does that actually do for the player? So what I found was that, and these are preliminary results, but what I found is that men typically act more violently or more aggressively after being exposed to a stimulus that has moral disengagement, so things like Halo. Women, on the other hand, are acting more violent with moral engaging cues. So when you when they when they played a game with when the protagonist went and committed mass murder for the sake of ethnically cleansing the world, then they actually committed more violent acts after playing that game. Yeah, I you know so I was looking at the uh, the preliminary research that you had sent to Jared and I, and uh, you know I, f- I found that kind of interesting because I think. I think it's a little bit counterintuitive from the way that people might regularly approach violent video games. Um, You know, I I think if you were to compare those games and you've got Halo where you're killing sort of cartoonish aliens or you have another game where you're ethnically cleansing the world, people might have a, a, a bigger issue with the ethnically cleansing game but at least from what I was reading in your your research, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it seemed like after playing the the game with the moral engagement cues that people were less likely to be uh, aggressive afterwards. Is that correct? Uh, just at for least men. Just men. for men. Yes. That seems so bizarre to me. Like that seems very backwards from the way that we would uh, typically think about the way that those games affect us. No, absolutely. As, as men. <laughs> right, abs- absolutely. But what I was thinking of when I'm when I'm completing this study, I'm wondering that there's a bunch of w- when we're completing scientific studies, especially within the communication, the whole the whole point is to find an independent variable that is affecting a dependent variable, and and how much how much variability we can actually uncover from isolating those variables. So the thing that I'm ha- I was having trouble grasping when I found those results was well, why are women acting more aggressive? after being subjected to something that you would think is getting them in tune to their moral compass. And the only things that I can think about right now 
and and I and this hence the reason that these are still preliminary results is the fact that one they might not have had the video game efficacy to play the game so maybe some of them got confused and they were simply getting frustrated when we're playing video games especially I mean even if we're not playing video games if we're playing sports we typically we typically get frustrated when we don't necessarily have the skills to complete a task so that was that was one way that I was thinking about it the second way that I was thinking about it was that the primary protagonist in that game was a male figure. So going on to the aggressive task that I assigned them to, I was a little bit curious as to whether or not the females were taking their aggression out almost almost as if they were punishing that male character. If they were able to if they were able to disengage themselves from the, the male protagonist and then when they were in the aggressive uh, follow-up if they were somehow punishing the male character. I don't have those results yet, but those are the two the two outlets that I'm going to be looking at in the future. Yeah, it was it was really interesting looking over that stuff. Now, when you're playing games, do you find that your research or your study influences the way that you respond to games? Do, you know, do you, are you playing sometimes a, a violent video game and you go, oh, there's another moral disengagement cue. I'm so tired of seeing these in video games. Or are you able to shut that part of your brain off and just enjoy a game more or less for what it is? I actually just like shutting it off. I mean, I, if I focused, I'm sure that like what you said, I'm like, oh, look, I got an achievement for killing somebody. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably subconsciously thinking like, oh, a moral disengagement cue. But but in retrospect, it's actually giving me a greater appreciation for video games and specifically from lines of like how if you play a game with like a good story, you can get so involved with that story that it transports you into a place where you are experiencing the story as a member of that storyline. That's, you know, I I think that's interesting because when I was in high school and moving into college, I was uh, interested in filmmaking and and started the process of of learning how to make films. And one of the things that I had been told multiple times by different people was the more you learn about filmmaking, the less you'll like watching movies. And uh, I found that to be completely opposite. I, I found a new sort of appreciation for watching films after learning how it's done. But I don't know if that's universal or maybe that's just a, you know, different people have different personality types for that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, it's cool to hear that your studies have made you more receptive to video games in certain ways. Oh, absolutely. Did you find that Jared? Jared and I, um, we both sort of followed similar trajectories in our education. Did you, when you were learning about film, did you find that that affected the way that you watched films uh i mean sometimes but it wasn't in a negative way i always kind of got to appreciate them a little bit more knowing what goes into it or you know sometimes i would be watching it and get like you know a little bit distracted by you know like oh man how did they how did they do that so it was it was always more of like a, a curiosity of figuring things out or, or why they did something a certain way rather than uh something that takes me out of it completely so I, I did hear that as well. It's like, oh, you know, never, never take up your, your passion as a job. And, you know, I, I, haven't, I still haven't run into that. I still appreciate TV, good TV, good scripted um, content. And just from, you know, a, a, a higher perspective, I guess, not to sound too bougie about it. But yeah, I, um, I even find that I enjoy bad movies more because of my education and background and also a little bit of background in, in, film critiquing i sometimes like to just bitch about movies more than i do actually watching them sometimes <laughs> depends on the film you know but come on thor 2 was trash 
<laughs> didn't you, I mean you used to have your own YouTube channel just reviewing movies it didn't ever seem like you bash anything too much but I wonder if that was just because you just saw movies that you knew that you would like anyways oh did you did you ever watch our Robocop review <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> oh my gosh that was ter- terrible films terrible films but we're not here to talk about films we're here to talk about video game design and today we're talking about first person shooters uh, let's launch into our discussion the way that we typically do, which is going over a, a little bit of a history lesson for the history buffs out there. Uh, first of all, I, I have a question for you, Steve. Like, why why are we... So Corey's research is, is mainly, um, at least for the purposes of this podcast, about aggression and, and video games and how violence in video games affects most people. Uh, why are we choosing to focus on first-person shooters for this? Oh, man. I feel like that's a there's a long answer to that. First-person shooters, I think, typically bear the brunt of a lot of the conversation that surrounds violence in video games. Doom sort of being the uh, the big poster child for violent video games. Yeah, especially like that early '90s hysteria over that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I you know, when when we found out we were going to have Corey on, I was trying to figure out, you know, what what can we talk about that um, will will tie into his studies and also hopefully some, you know, the types of games that he likes to play. And, and also... Ho- hopefully we did that. Yeah, I mean, and also, like, violence in video games is such a broad topic, right? Like, it's... I, mean, I think we're just trying to narrow it down a little bit with first-person shooters because I don't think there's any lack of uh, discussion to be had surrounding that. When we first started putting this show together, um, we had a whole list of topics that uh, we wanted to talk about on the show, and, and one of them was violence, and uh, I think we wisely agreed at the time that we were going to try to separate it into more sort of bite-sized components. And that way it allows us to discuss these things in, you know, a little more fine detail, but also over the course of the show, hopefully we can get more people's perspectives. But, you know, I, I, I thought with having Corey on, uh, this would be a great opportunity to, to start to delve into this, this overarching theme of violence in video games. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Corey? No, I mean, you guys hit the nail on the head with saying that it's such a complex topic, and and I think that trying to trying to attack violence in video games, or or specifically looking at a type of video games in retrospect of violence, it, it it would just be. I mean, we could be sitting here for months talking about it. So yeah, I'm sure I, this isn't the last time that we'll talk about it on this podcast. That's for sure. No, I, it, it's 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 such a great topic to talk about, and um, I, I like I like hearing people's perspectives just. Just for the simple fact that, you know, despite the amount of data that you collect on it, everybody's everybody's going to be different. We're never going to be 100% certain on, you know, does does a violent video game have a 100% causality for some dependent variable? All right. Did we want to uh, jump into our, our history lesson here, Jared? Yeah. Do you mind if I uh, take this one? Oh, sure, man. Go for it. Yeah. I think you uh, did a lot more research probably into it than I did. Yeah. So... Let's talk a little bit about the origins of the first-person shooter. The exact origins of it are a little bit disputed, but uh, one of the earliest examples that most people can agree on was a computer game called Maze War. It was developed and kind of released around 1972, 1974, somewhere in there. It was created by two NASA interns named Stephen Coley and Greg Thompson. They were there as uh, summer interns at NASA, and they were kind of thinking, like, how can we use our time here wisely? And, uh, you know, I think wise is the uh, the key word here, but they, 
they developed a uh, a, a maze on uh, one of NASA's first uh, computers called the the MLAC PDS1. It was the same computers that were used to work on the space shuttle program at the time. You know, it was uh, just a basic maze that you walk through in first person. Steve Coley kind of made this for people to, you know, I guess, I don't know if they're using it for cognitive tests or whatever to, to see how people would, would navigate through this thing. But it was one of the first computers to have like a fully motion integrated display and all this kind of stuff. So Steve brought this little computer simulation in of just walking through a maze. And fortunately for him, uh, his, his co-interns, Greg and Howard, they, they saw more potential to it. They were quickly able to figure out how to connect two of those, those MLAC computers together and communicate back and forth how to show a position. So they basically, at the same time, they were creating the first first-person game, uh, created the first multiplayer first-person game. So the original version of it was this this guy, you know, just something walking through a maze. There was no, there was nothing to it, uh, and they found that kind of boring. So they were like, well, how could we spice this up? His two uh, co co interns, Howard and Greg, were like, well, let's add guns to it. Like that was just the easiest first thing. Like, how do we turn this into a game? So they added guns to it and then they made a model since the, there was now two people they were able to run around this maze. They made a, a model. I think one was like an eyeball or something. And uh, I think actually, I think initially it was maybe just the player's name. I don't think the eyeball avatar was added until later versions of that game. Sure. Yeah. Like this thing was iterated upon year after year. Like the, yeah. they, they took it to MIT and they were like, how could we make this more awesome? And uh, they upgraded it to run over the uh, ARPANET there, which was a precursor to the modern Internet. They had like 50 kilobit per second upload speeds, but they were they able to make it work. You know, it was a very simple maze where you would go forward one tile at a time and turn 90 degrees. It was just kind of cool. And I thought that was just kind of interesting. That it was like, well, we have two people in here that can interact with each other. What what can they do? And like the first thing that they went to is like, oh, let's just shoot each other. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think you can see how influential the Cold War was on art and science at the time. Because I can't remember. I think it was a two episodes ago when we were talking about the pursuit of realism. That's what it was. It was graphics we were talking about, and the the game that was sort of the progenitor of realistic graphics was a game called Space War. So I think it's funny that in both of these uh, you know, in both of these episodes when we're talking about the origins of these video game mechanics, they're war related games and I I I seriously wonder how, you know, how much of that is because the Cold War was going on at the time. Yeah, I, yeah, I wonder if that's uniquely an American thing because most of, you know, my my background research of looking into the history of first person shooters it was from an American perspective. You know, maybe maybe the first-person shooter is a uniquely American thing overall. I know that Doom was certainly one of the first ones to make it mainstream. Yeah, I wonder if, if Maze Wars was made in Holland in the 70s. I wonder if it would you would be giving flowers to each other instead of shooting each other in the face. <laughs> um, Maze Wars, was, I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, did you... Watch any of the gameplay for it, Jared? No, I just saw some screenshots, but it looked kind of like uh, like vector-based graphics, right? Yeah, it, it simultaneously had cool graphics and also the worst graphics you've ever seen. In the it, the space is definitely represented in in three dimensions, which is kind of cool considering how old the game is. But movement is super rigid. It's not like movement you would see in video games today. 
it's like when you press forward, your character is essentially transported one space forward and they're not moving fluidly through the environment. And the same thing holds true for turning your camera. It's not like you, you spin slowly. It's when you hit the left key, you immediately snap, you know, 90 degrees to looking to the left. So it's cool that it's represented in 3D, but it's not, you're essentially looking at a still image unless there's another player on the screen. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that what Steve and his his co-interns did, because this was three years before Star Wars A New Hope came out, you know, so they, they essentially invented the first person shooter and then they, you know, added avatars to it and then networked them together before there was an internet. So it's uh, pretty be- ahead of its time, I think. Yeah, did you have anything to add to this, Corey? Is there any... Uh... Is there anything interesting that we kind of left out when we're talking about Maze War? No, I mean, I think what the interesting thing was is like you were saying, it's that it was that it was a first-person shooter technically, but the the lack of flow in that game, so literally just looking at a different screen and then clicking and either moving back, forward, uh, or turning 90 degrees. What I thought was really interesting, so I, I took a look at the link that you provided and... Uh, what I thought was really interesting is when you were looking at the other player. So I think one was called Bomber, and I forget what the other the other name of the player was. But when you were looking at the player and the eyeball was, so this is a later version of it. When that player turned, you could actually see them look away from you. So they actually did manipulate the image to correspond with that other person's computer when it was eventually on some sort of network play. And I thought that, you know, despite the limitations that they had, they still that they made it work and were able to show you at least a perspective from looking at somebody, how that other player was not looking at you. One of the other, other interesting things that I'll bring up is I don't think that you killed the other player. I don't think that there was a, a elimination mechanic in this game. I believe it was points. Like you got points for shooting someone and then you lost points for getting shot, but there was, you you couldn't ultimately like kill someone. Yeah. I think the script, I think the screen flashed and 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 I somebody was talking about it in an interview that uh, was playing it and they go, oh, I was shot or, oh, they were shot. But I mean, if you were just playing it and had no instructions whatsoever due to graphical limitations and things like that, you would get a point and the screen would flash. So it might just look like a giant game of tag or something. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting because as we move on to talk about our, our definitions for modern first person shooters, I think the uh, the act of of killing things and enacting violence is a big part of that definition for for modern first person shooters. Now how are, how are we for the purposes of this podcast defining a first person shooter? Are we talking about any game that's in first person or is, are we talking about something more specific? I'll let you take that one first, Corey. You know, when when I the funniest thing is when you're looking at definitions of types of video games. I think you got to look at it from a you're looking at it from a strictly connotative definition. So, for instance, you know, taking the role of a main character from their perspective, you know, that would be first person shooting. You know, if we're if we're thinking about shooting something, does that include just wep- uh just guns? Does it include bow and arrows? Uh, you know, I things like Skyrim, uh, where you can swing a sword. You know, I mean, if we're going from a connotative definition, I would say that if the primary action of that character is to propel an object forward in order to dispel an enemy and you are in a first person, then obviously that would be a first person shooter video game. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because I think that 
there's a, a difference in the way that we define games based on the weapon that you hold in your hand. Uh, mm-hmm. And this may or may not be true, but you mentioned Skyrim. And I think if you asked someone sort of bluntly, you know, what, what genre of video game is Skyrim? I think most people would probably say first it's an RPG Absolutely. and a first person shooter second. And now these are just, you know, these are just sort of s- semantic arguments. And, and I guess I, I don't know how much they play into our overall discussion, but I think that is an interesting component of the first person shooter is that, you know, once it goes from being a, a rifle in your hands to being a, a bow and arrow, there is there's almost an entire genre switch that happens in people's heads. Mm-hmm. It's also like, you know, the mechanics of Skyrim are much different than doom. For, you know, it's like, I almost wouldn't even consider game like Bioshock to be a first person shooter, but I think it's still relevant to the conversation. But that's interesting. Cause Bioshock does have a lot of those RPG elements to it, you know, leveling up and um, acquiring magic spells that you can use against your enemies but if you ask someone point blank you know what kind of game is this i think most people would say first person shooter first and rpg second as compared to the skyrim example sure i mean i guess it would just depend on when you look at it how that gameplay is emphasized throughout exactly yeah i I don't know why i mean i don't know exactly why this is important for the conversation that we're gonna have about first person shooters but I, i i do think that this idea of subtle differences drastically changing the way that we perceive these video games is is interesting. Yeah, I think I, mean, that, I think people would have, you know, like if okay, let's let's say you're a parent and you're putting a video game in a child's hands. I think most people would be more willing to put Skyrim in a in a kid's hands than they would be willing to put the most recent Doom game in a child's hands. And I think Skyrim, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you can decapitate your victims and you're seeing that up close because you're, you're the one swinging the sword at them in the first person perspective. Again, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with any of this. I just think it's interesting. Well, you brought up an interesting question in the notes here is, is violence a necessary component? And I think by definition, a first person shooter, you know, you're, you're shooting things. So if, if we're going by what is the primary mechanic of a first person shooter and you're talking about a game like Portal. Does that even qualify as a first-person shooter? Because it, it's not really. There's no. There's not a ton of violence in Portal, but you're also not shooting things. So is it still a first-person shooter? So I think by definition, violence would be a necessary component when you're defining this type of game. I don't know how you would make a first-person shooter non-violent. Yeah, how do you, how do you feel about that, Corey? See, I think when we're talking about violence and then we're talking about first-person shooters, we're talking about completely different game mechanics you know you have one which is like so so for instance just breaking down first person shooter okay a shooter to me if i'm just going by by the basic definition of a shooter or like what's commonly adopted when the electronic software association or when you have like these rating systems that say like what type of game is this going to belong to or what genre of game is this going to belong to it's mainly the referring to the main type of play style that they're going through. So if we're looking at a shooter, this is simply something where somebody is shooting something and, and whether or not that is to dispel enemies or whether or not it's just simply the act of propelling an object forward, uh, that, that's up to interpretation depending on whether or not you start to include things like violence. So I think there can be violent, non, uh, violent 
first-person shooters and non-violent first-person shooters. Now, if we're talking about a game like Portal, do I think would I classify it just out of the blue as a first-person shooter? Me, personally, no. I would probably classify it as a puzzle game. You know, you're, you're trying to solve these various mazes. Do I think that it has components of a first-person shooter? Absolutely. You have... Uh, you don't even have to consider it a weapon, but it is something that shoots something, right? You have the the blue portal and the the orange portal, so it's incorporating elements from a first person shooter into a puzzle game. Then you have more violent first person shooter games, such as you know the Call of Duty franchise, Doom, uh, Wolfenstein, things like that, where the primary objective is to shoot and dispel enemies that are uh, blocking your progress in the game. But then you could also argue that those games that do have a story which is involved with a first-person shooter, you know, do take on some sort of action from like an RPG. So I, I think where it starts to get a little bit muddy is the fact that a lot of these a lot of these genres and a lot of these game mechanics are used intermittently, but because you know the Electronic Software Association and uh, a bunch of different game designers feel like, oh, we have to pinpoint what genre our game has to belong to. That's where it starts getting a little bit confusing. Now, have you done a lot of research into like the ESRB and how they rate games? Uh, not personally. Uh, I, I, I mean, I know a little bit about how it's done, um, but extensive knowledge, not really. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know very much about that process myself. I was curious if you knew, like, if a game gets defined as an FPS, does that affect its its rating or the way that it's rated? Is that something you know the answer to? I, I don't know the answer, but I, that is actually an interesting thing because you know people think about first-person shooters, and and the first thing that they think about is like, oh, this game is probably going to be violent. But let's say you know you were having you know think about the Motion Picture Association of America. You have a bunch of people who are supposed to be gen, uh, generalizable to the general public, and they essentially rate a movie before that movie comes out. I don't know if it's done in the same way with games, but let's say you were going to say, okay, you're going to watch or you're going to play a first-person shooter or you're going to play a puzzle game. And let's say this the game's Portal and they don't know that. Do you? I'm wondering whether or not that that would intrinsically affect how they're going to rate the game just based on that simple label. And maybe this is just me and my very narrow perspective because I've been, I'm an older gamer now, you know, I'm in my 30s, but I don't feel like anyone really even talks about ESRB ratings like they have uh, like they did in the past like when games were first coming out and you're like oh man the new this Grand Theft Auto 3 it's going to be rated M like that's going to be crazy like what are they going to do with this game like I almost never in the discussion surrounding video games hear anyone talk about a game's rating anymore um, unlike I still hear it a bit around movies where people are like oh I wish this is going to be rated R because they're going to they're going to soften it too much for mainstream audiences I don't get that same feeling when um, people are just talking about video games in the modern day. So I'm wondering if it's just kind of an outdated system at this point. Well, so I had an interesting experience. I was I recently went to GameStop to pick up a few games, and uh, there was a, a kid there, probably like 12, uh, with his mom, and he wanted to, to pick up a, a game that had been rated M, and the clerk at the store, you know, asked the mom, like, you know, this is a game rated M. I just want to let you know before you buy this for your child, you know, is that okay? And she said, you know, she said yes. And they, they purchased the game game and went along. Um, the reason I'm interested in this question is because 
same thing you know, holds true in films. You know, the reason a lot of people don't make rated R films is because once you make a rated R film, you're instantly cutting off a large portion of the market. You know, people under the age of whatever it is, 16 or 17. I don't know what rated R, what the cutoff for rated R films is at movie theaters, but they, they can't go see your movie unattended. And you're, you're basically saying, I don't want that money. So when it comes to designing a game, if it being called a first person shooter makes it more likely to be rated M, you know, does that affect the decision making for developers or would a developer be less likely to make a, a violent first person shooter because it's going to get an M rating or they try to disguise it in the trappings of a puzzle game or uh, a fantasy game, an RPG in the, you know, perhaps in the, in the case of Skyrim. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in, in how that rating system affects the design decisions for these games. This is purely speculation on my part, like everything is pretty much on this podcast, but oh, yeah. I very much get the feeling that that is not the case. They decide right off the bat, like, what is this game? What do we want to make here? And usually I think that from a publisher standpoint, maybe they're looking at content, but they're not, they're not asking, like, are we going to make an M-rated game? Right off the bat, I don't, I don't, I just don't get that feeling ever when people are discussing video game development. And it's interesting, right? Because I, I, I feel the same way. And again, with my limited understanding of, of how those decisions are made, I get the sense that a lot of developers just make the game they want to make and then it gets rated whatever it gets rated. Um, but that makes it unique as an art form, at least when you're comparing it to, to films and, uh, I feel like music might be the same way as well, right? Like a musician might just make the music they want to make and then it gets rated whatever it gets rated. I remember growing up and like looking, I was like, oh yeah, this one has the explicit parental advisory sticker on it. Like I definitely want to listen to it. But I mean, now that you barely even see album covers anymore, like I don't even know that that's a thing either. But I mean, what are, so like, you know, we kind of talk about the developer's decision on from what perspective to develop their game like what what would be like some of the advantages and disadvantages of um making a game first person um i mean so i some of the things about first person is i think a, this could be both a pro and a con you know so for instance a pro if the game is a first person shooter but it also has a really good storyline which i'm just going to go ahead and say most of the time i'm playing a first person shooter i skip and and unfortunately and I'm saying, unfortunately, because I, a lot of the times they will have a pretty interesting story behind it. But, I, you know, you have that option to skip and you're like, you go to a new scene. And you're like, oh, crap, what what just happened? Why am I why am I here? Uh, but but the ability to also integrate that storyline, I think putting somebody in a first person perspective, they're they're able to be transported into that game a little bit more than they would be, let's say, a third person or uh, a an isometric game, something along the lines of which doesn't have a good story. Um, because maybe from the first person perspective, they're looking at it as like, almost oh, this is almost me. You know, I, I am this character, unless it's otherwise specified in the game. Now, the problem with that or the con, uh, like I was saying, is that the more that somebody feels that they are within that game, there's a potential increase for them to feel like a sort of presence within that game and start to be able or start to not be able to differentiate between virtual reality and actual reality. And, and I think that that starts where you start to see that lethal combination of, you know, psychosocial theory where you're going to start transferring aggression from the video game into like 
a a real world setting. See, it's almost the exact opposite for me, and this is just obviously my anecdotal evidence. But I, every time I play a first person game, I, I would say not okay, not every time, but most of the time, I feel disconnected from my character. Now, I might be a little bit immersed in the other characters and stuff that's going on around me, but for example, in Half-Life 2, Gordon Freeman, have there not been a cover art for him and what he looks like? I wouldn't, like, he's a silent protagonist, like, especially the fact that he's a silent protagonist. I have no feelings, I felt nothing for that main character versus a third-person game, um, you know, I'm playing Mass Effect or something like that, and like, oh yeah, Shepard, he's in this world, he's he's this guy who has this whole story behind him. Um, I just never, oh, I almost never get that from first-person games, unless, especially first-person shooters. Um, you know, now there's exceptions like stuff like Gone Home, which is essentially a walking simulator, and um, what was the other game that I recently played? Oh, um, Wolfenstein The New Order. They have cutscenes in Wolfenstein where you see your character from a third person perspective and it's more like a film so I, I feel a little bit more connected to that protagonist versus my guy in skyrim like i don't i don't give a shit about his backstory i don't care about gordon freeman i think that conversation changes a little bit and it kind of ties into what you're saying Corey, about that psychological aspect when we start talking about vr and the, and things that are going to be happening to the player in vr because i can't imagine being more connected to basically being yourself in this environment than you are in VR. So when we start talking about like violence towards other characters in games and violence that happens to people in games, I think that's going to be a very different discussion going forward in game development for virtual reality. Jared, Jared, do me a favor. Say Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein. Oh, that's not how you said it earlier. What did I say? It sounded like you said Wolfenstein, which I kind of prefer. That's the mod that I installed where you play you, you play as a dog. You play as one of their do- uh, Nazi dog robot hybrids, Wolfenstein. You know, that, that sounds I, amazing, actually. I really liked your answer on that because you're saying how you get more connected to the character from a third person perspective. And what I would be interested to know a little bit about, though, is like, so for instance, I know that a lot of first-person shooter games, people are not going to get as connected to the character because they don't necessarily share that bond with that character. And I think that that has to do with a little bit of like... So, for instance, a lot of first-person shooter games, they will have that multiplayer mode where they're playing. Now, if you look at the single-player campaign, or, or, you know me, I'm going to go ahead and classify from this conversation point Bioshock as a first-person shooter that has like role-playing game elements. So in that game... You know, I remember playing the first one and getting to the part where Andrew Ryan is hovering over you, basically saying that you're a puppet. You've been being used this entire time. And then at the end of the game where you have Atlas, who basically said, yeah, I've double crossed you this entire thing. I staged my family's death. Like, I just want to be this all powerful being. You know, there was a moment where I was thinking, God, am I stupid? Like, I I know (laughs) I'm just I know I'm just playing this game. But the fact that I had that, and once again, anecdata, uh, once again, having that little bit of, even even the my, the most minute feeling of I was just taken advantage of, that goes to show me that I was I was somehow so involved in that video game that it gave me some sort of like interpersonal conflict. Sure, yeah. I think that's an exceptional case as well because they they used the medium of a video game and the perspective of that game to that was very much integrated in the overall premise 
of the main story. On the flip side, you know, I finished Titanfall 2 last year and I couldn't tell you two things about that main character. I don't remember his name. I remember almost nothing about the main character in Titanfall 2. I mean, it was a great game, don't get me wrong. It had awesome mechanics, the shooting was tight, uh, the, your, little, your, your robot buddy was awesome, but I, I, I just, I, I don't even remember a single thing about the main character that you play as in that game. So it's hard for me to say that I was connected, more connected to that character than I was to, you know, like Shepard in Mass Effect or something. Yeah, I'm curious how we're defining the term connected because I feel like we might be using two different definitions of it in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Because I think in general, I agree with some of the things you're saying, Jared, about first-person games. I typically don't really remember the story so much. And I and I don't really, re- you know, I don't know very many of the details about the main character, especially when they're silent like Gordon Freeman was. But when we're talking about being connected, like let's use the Witcher as an example. You know, when you're when you're playing as Geralt in that game, do you feel like you are taking on the role of Geralt? Do you feel connected to him in that way? Like, this is me, I am Geralt. Or do you feel connected to him in the way that you would like watching a TV show or a movie? that he is uh, a character that these things are happening to and you're, you're watching these things happen to him. I mean, I, I guess that's like a huge, that's obviously the distinction between first and third person. But I, I'm curious, like, do you, do you find yourself, I, the, the term in like filmmaking, I guess, is, is suture or the term I hear used in video games is like a, a flow state. You know, do you, do you become lost in that character when you're playing a third person game or is that more likely to happen in a first person game? I feel like there might be sort of two separate definitions of the word connected that we're using. And I just want to kind of clear up how, how we're referring to those things. Like, uh, so I guess, Corey, I'll ask you, you know, if Bioshock was presented in a third person perspective, do you think that you would have that same feeling that you had at the end of that game when you realize like, oh, I've just been sort of going through the motions the way that my character did. So, so here's the thing. Uh, when, when I look at these two types of relationships, the, the, from the third person perspective, or that, or that, that second, the second type of relationship that you were discussing, um, we can have those with television characters, and those are called parasocial relationships. We feel empathy. This is, for this th- is why we brought you on. This is why you're here. <laughs> well, I appreciate I there was there's some kind of words that I was missing. Somebody's going to be watching, uh, listening, and be like, "No, but no, it's it's." So you have these parasocial relationships with these characters. You know, think about it. We, we, we watch TV. We were watching TV probably before video games, and uh, at least the general public was. And we started to develop these relationships with the characters. So, uh, you know, I was from when I was a kid and uh, right at the end of high school and beginning of college, I, I really liked the show How I Met Your Mother. And I would get really like, oh, you know, that uh, why, why is this character doing this? Like, that actually makes me feel bad for that character. Now, I know that these people are just actors and actresses. But I have that empathy and I have that sympathy. I almost look at that like a third-person perspective. So if I was playing the Bioshock from a third-person perspective, I don't know if I could get like th- that happened to me. You know, if if Andrew Ryan came over to me, you are being used like a sheep, or you are you are following like a sheep. You know, a, a man. I, I forget the slogan. It's like a man choose a boy obeys or something like that. A slave obeys. Like if I was looking at that from the third-person perspective, I'm like, oh, my character is a slave but looking at it from a first person perspective it's almost like i 
like I obeyed somebody. I was being a slave to somebody. Um, now the concept of flow, you know, being able to flow, that, that's a little bit different. Like flow is when you, you achieve that optimal state of experience, which is trying to get to a goal. So for instance, we can experience flow in many different things that we, we, we do in the day. So for instance, athletes experience flow when they, when they're playing a game, you know, they, they, they hit that optimal experience where it's giving them that rush. They're being able to do things and, and they kind of just zone out the world just to achieve that goal. So if the goal is winning that game, when we experience flow in video games, it's almost the same concept, except for the fact that, you know, what is that goal at that time? So for instance, if you are trying to get through a chapter of a story, if you're trying to get to the next checkpoint, if you're trying to just beat the game, you can achieve flow when you, when you have that heightened sense of like being tuning out that all the alternate world or the, or in actuality reality. Now, when you're starting to experience presence and, and being transported by that narrative, that's where I think that you start to, you start to get to that. Now I'm starting to feel like I'm that main character. You know, I, not, it's not that I have a parasocial relationship with that character. It's not that I'm feeling empathy for someone else. It's not that I'm feeling sympathy for someone else. It's that now I'm feeling what is going on to that character. Like other people's actions are dictating how I feel. And this is just a virtual representation of myself. Now, is that more likely to happen in a first person video game or uh, are there any distinctions or is there any research on that that you're aware of? You know, I, I don't know of a lot of research right off the top of my head, um, and and it's gonna it's gonna vary by person. You know, some people are able to be transported into games, or some people are able to have their presence into games because they they have a personal connection. When we play video games, certain knowledge scripts that we have developed over the course of our life are activated. Um, whether or not you have a whether or not you have a relationship with that game is gonna develop uh, is gonna depend on whether or not those certain knowledge scripts activate. So, for instance, if I'm if I'm playing a violent game and the way that I was raised is to handle various various types of problems in my life violently or aggressively, then playing a violent video game may activate those knowledge structures and you know cause me to act more aggressively and allow me to de- to become more like that character or to you know develop some sort of relationship with that character. If my knowledge scripts aren't activated and I really can't get involved with the story because it doesn't really feel like me, it doesn't it doesn't activate what I've done in the past, I might distance myself from it. You know, I'm not going to be able to achieve that state of transportation. I'm not going to be able to achieve that flow. I'm not going to be able to uh, achieve that state of presence within that video game. So it's very, very unique to that individual. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. It, it depends on, uh, you know, people come to video games for a lot of different reasons. Some people do it just to release stress. I personally like to play games for the uh, the story, mo- for the most part. And the one first-person game that I can honestly say that I felt more connected to the world and the character uh, than I would had it been in third-person was the game Firewatch. And have you guys played that at all? Or you guys are at least familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, I know Firewatch. Now, okay, so you're you're starting to get into some some territory that uh, I think you and I could have uh, a fist fight over. But go ahead. Um, well, I just wanted to say, you know, like Firewatch was one of the first first person games that kind of gave me like an emotional connection to the character, more so because it was in first person. Uh, it was a game that focuses a lot on introspective. He, you know, looks inside of himself a lot. 
he has this uh, relationship with this woman over the over the radio uh, as he's you know basically all you're doing is walking around this this forest and you're you're a forest ranger and um, given my personal connections to the relationships that I've had in my life and my uh, love for the outdoors like that the game really connected to me in a way that I don't think it would have had it been a third person game and I was you know observing this as um, you know as a passive viewer. I felt more connected to the story and the things that were happening in that game because it was in first person. And, you know, that's a game that's not violent. There's not a whole lot of violence that happens in that. So I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it does highly depend on your experiences and the reasons that you come to these games. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will bring up the video game Proteus later. Um, Never heard of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and, and clearly that's that's not a first person shooter. That's I would say uh sort of push back against the first person shooter. One of the things I think is, you know, if we're talking about the pros and cons of first person shooters, I think one of the the major cons, one of the uh, one of the things that detracts from first person shooters is the fact that you're typically your only way to interact in that world is the use of a firearm or you know or some other some other weapon, however you choose to define first person shooters, but it's typically, you know, there, there may be moments in the game where you can have conversations and maybe even have some choices in those conversations. But the gameplay part of a first person shooter is shooting things in the face. And I think that that's a, that's a huge problem because it really limits the types of stories that can be told. So you found that you really connected with a game like firewatch and I think it, I think it's interesting because that there's no shooting in that game. You 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 have different ways to interact in that world. You know, talking over the radio or or even something as simple as like picking up litter in the forest. Those are you know different ways to interact in the world that you don't get from most first person shooters, where you're you're just limited to like pulling the trigger and blowing something away. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was something as simple as being able to walk around the the watchtower and like look at the books that they kept in there. Like I found it interesting uh, that, that the collection of books themselves told a story that, you know, it kind of explained who these people were and, and what this world was about. And it was just, a, you know, it was a very personal story that uh, I, I connected with because of that reason. All right, now I have possibly the most important question uh, that I can ask in this discussion of first-person shooters. Do you invert your Y-axis, Corey? I don't. You leave it. Uh, you leave it up is up, down is down. Yep. Yes, I do. Jared, how about you? When I'm using a controller, 100%, I invert the y-axis. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> as I if feel this, like we're, this we're podcast rare. wasn't already an echo chamber between the two of us, but I no, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. It was probably due to whatever first-person shooter I played when I was a kid and growing up. I they probably defaulted to that. See, I can, I can actually like. I can trace it back to the specific game in my childhood. I, I can't remember the name of the game, and it was not even a first-person shooter. It was a flight game. But I remember that was the first time that I had uh, encountered the concept of inverted Y-axis in a video game. And it like changed the way I, I played games. And I think maybe it's because there was something internal in me. like Maybe my mind worked a certain way 
that uh, having up as up and down as down just never felt right. And then once I realized that there was a, an alternative that you could invert it, that it like really clicked with me. Cause I, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like it was a learned behavior more than it was a discovered trait, if that makes any sense. Yeah. The example that I always give to people who don't invert their Y axis and like they can't understand why someone would, I always say like, imagine you're playing a game and think of it from like a third person perspective. Uh, and there's a stick sticking out of that person's head from behind to move their eyes, you know, their, their eye line upward, you would push down on that stick. Right. And that would move their head backwards so they could look up. So that to me makes, that makes sense. And that's, the way I've always done that. Now, the monster that I wouldn't want to meet is the one that inverts their Y axis while using a mouse and keyboard. I, I don't even know who that is, but that's just uh, yeah. But you know, like this—the sort of like typical reaction someone would have to you. You know, oh, it's a stick coming out of the back of someone's head, and you would you know press down to make them look up. The the counterpoint to that is much simpler. It's if I want them to look up, why don't I press up? <laughs> it's not natural. I don't know. You know it's. <laughs> It's weird to me, though, because like, you know, I remember the first time I experienced the inverted Y was also a was also a, fl a flight simulation game. And and what I'm f when I have like a game like, let's say, Grand Theft Auto five, where you, you are both shooting from a uh, you can shoot from a third and first person perspective with at least with the updated version of it. And you can also fly a plane when I'm flying. That's inverted. But when I'm controlling the character, and I think that might be just for the simple fact that when you're flying the plane, the inversion is on the uh, the left stick. But when you're aiming, the inversion's on the right stick. So hmm. I have no idea why. I, I don't know. I'm, I might just be a weird person, but like I, I invert when I when I drive or when I fly, but I just go normal when I'm shooting or aiming. I think it's funny. I've I've had heated discussions in the past over inverting Y axis. The, the worst was uh, my old roommate. He didn't invert his Y axis and we would play Call of Duty and we would switch it off. You know, we'd switch off on deaths. And it's like every time you switched off the controller, you had to <laughs> go into the options and reset it. So we were just like always frustrated at each other, especially when we'd forget to do it after taking control. Like, oh, what, get take it, it personally. Like, oh, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Exactly. You fucking, you're a fucking monster. <laughs> I don't want to live in this house anymore. Um, oh man. All right. I feel so, like there's so much to talk about with all of this stuff, but, um, is there any, like, does anyone have like any major points that they wanted to talk about in relations to first person shooters and violence? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's, it's hard to discuss this and I think not bring up Columbine. I don't know, like, I don't know how relevant this is to the conversation nowadays, but I feel like we would be remiss in discussing first person shooters if we didn't at least briefly touch on, uh, on Columbine. I, I don't know. Like, is this a thing that is still relevant to the discussion about video games? Cause I remember when it happened in 99 that it was like the big thing. It was, you know, Doom made these guys crazy. Doom and Marilyn Manson made these kids go crazy and kill all, you know, all their classmates. But I don't, is that a, is that still a commonly held belief that, that video games can cause people to behave violently? I mean, I think it's an easy out for the media to latch on to something for people to be outraged at. It's hard for people to 
wrap their minds around that these kids were severely mentally ill and it's an easier narrative to spin when you can blame it on something like a violent video game such as doom it's like it's it's hugely complex right like it's not just the video games and it's not just the music and it's not just the parents and it's not just the bullying at school but yeah like how do you condense that into a you know a sound bite for the news you just say doom made him do it i guess i mean think I think know. about think about the thing that people people are going to want to latch onto nobody wants to admit that their kids are mentally ill nobody wants you know from the little note that i took here uh some of the special agent psychologists that were looking at the two individuals in Columbine, Klebold and Harris, um, one was literally just in pain, hot-headed, and depressive. The other one was contemptuous, disgusted, superiority complex, and recognized that uh, recognized Eric Harris as a psychopath. So, I mean, from a parent's perspective, nobody nobody wants to admit, because uh, think about that. that. That reflects on the parent. Like, what, did I do something wrong to make that child like that? Did Was it, was it my upbringing? Or was it did how I brought up my child? Did that affect them? And then you have things like, like you guys said, music and and video games. You know, trying to isolate one thing that would cause somebody to lash out and and commit a gratuitous act of violence, like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold did back in 1999, it would be almost impossible. There's not one thing that did that. But when you have a lethal combination of being bullied at school listening to things and and experience things that show you that acting in a violent way can give you positive results you know when we are brought up we learn to do things by modeling others that's the only way that we really that's the only way that we really do it i mean when we're infants we don't understand the human language right we can understand intonations and things like that but i remember my father telling me a story and he he used to have a lot of like, and, and this is his words, not mine, but knickknacks on the table. I'm a little child walking around and I want to go touch that, touch that thing on the table. And he would say, no, you know, don't, you know, don't touch that. Now me as a baby, I, I possibly I'm learning how to understand the word. No. Oh, that's but the I, only, that's the only word that my child 100% understands. And he, <laughs> he says it constantly. It's, it's so frustrating. You want to eat breakfast? No. <laughs> you want to go for a walk? No. <laughs> like, but, but, you know, so, but, but then you have a child that despite the fact that they understand that word, they don't necessarily have a grasp on the consequences of doing something. I mean, think about it. It's a parent's job to keep their kid from killing themselves. I mean, that's, that, that's the human species. Yeah, I, can, we uh, keep, I can echo that. We keep, we keep our children from killing, killing themselves. So my dad, like, you know, grabbing something on the table that was glass. The second time I went to go do it, You'd hear the no, like I I know it kind of kind of sound kind of sound condescending in the sense that he's talking to me like an animal, but you know I didn't I don't think about it in that aspect in you know at, at my current age, and and you start to begin to associate those different concepts with like detrimental consequences. So if the only way that a child is brought up is playing violent video games, let's say they they start playing these violent video games at like age five, right? And and think about it, kids nowadays know how to play video games a lot more than we did. I mean, when we were children, there was left, right, up, down, A, B, right? Mm-hmm. And that developed into X and Y and the, and the triggers. Now kids know how to do it. So if the only outlet that you give them how to handle their experiences is with violence and aggression, 
yeah, that's going to make some sort of impact on them and as to how to handle it. But then going back to like, let's say they, they, they know how to handle conflict in a, in a positive way. You know, they can do conflict resolution skills. They, they're able to talk with one another. Uh, and violence is simply used as a last resort to something. So for instance, you know, we're brought up and the, well, at least I, the way that I was brought up is violence should be something that can be avoided, should be avoided if it can be avoided. But if I was growing up to say like, oh, if somebody calls you a bad name or something like that, you just go punch them in the face. I would probably react to violent video games more different than I do now. So I think that, you know, if, if the child is taught from a young age to handle violent situations or to handle conflict in a, in a more productive way, playing these violent video games on occasion might activate short-term aggression. And by that, I mean literally acting aggressively in the video game or potentially a little bit after. So maybe just getting a little bit upset. But the long-term con- consequences are going to be that script activation for how they were brought up. Uh, is there anything else that we wanted to talk about with Columbine? I, again, I, I don't know how important this is nowadays. Uh, I just, you know, it was one of the first times I remember hearing video games like really vilified in the news. No, I mean, I think we kind of succinctly summed up the whole discussion behind. I mean, it it wasn't just Columbine. There's there's always something in the news in the 90s about violent video games and something that someone did somewhere. But I don't know. I don't know that revisiting that is productive either. No, and we don't we don't have to spend any more time on it. I just I, I again, I felt like we would just be remiss without mentioning it. But there it is. Um, all right, let's move on. What what do we want to see from first person shooters as we move forward? What would we like to see developers uh, do differently, or I guess continue to do the same? You know, what what do we want to see from the industry in the future? And I just want some variety. And and, well, and variety how variety in in what ways? So for instance, we were talking a little bit earlier about how like Call of Duty Battlefield. You know, despite the fact that there are new titles, like if you could even call it that. You know, Call of Duty is like the main title, but then you have these like little subsects or like Battlefield, you know, they will take place at a different time. They will take place in a different thing. But I mean, being able to do something different and I and and I'm not the person to say how that is because I'm not a game developer, but we've talked a little bit about a con about first person shooter video games is that they, they can become repetitive so fast. And I think that giving players an ability the ability to to change change up the game a little bit. I mean, not to the point where it's going to obviously change the style or the genre of the game, but you know, I think that that's what where you guys talk about Overwatch, and I think that that's what they were trying to do with that game is the fact that it's different and it was wildly successful. You know, that you don't just have a gun that shoots a bullet; you have you have many different ways to kill a player or to earn points or to capture a flag. Um, you know things things that can give the player a little bit more stimulation than just point and shoot another player have you guys played super hot no it's one that i really do want to play i've seen plenty of footage uh from the original super hot and then also super hot vr so I'm, i'm pretty familiar with how it plays sure um you have to play super hot that game is fucking rad and it is so relevant to this conversation in so many ways but I, I really don't want to spoil a lot for people who haven't played it yet. But play super hot and then come back to this podcast and think about some of the concepts that we've talked about here because 
it does some crazy, crazy things with. Well, you can you can tell people like a, the the general mechanics of it. That's not really. Well, yeah, a I mean, I think I'm okay. So I mean, the, the the general mechanics of Super High are it's a first person game. Time only moves when you move. So every time you walk, take a step forward, the guy who just shot a gun at you, his bullet will come forward a little bit. And they do a lot of things where you can pick up stuff in the environment and throw it at guys and then their gun flies at your face and you grab that gun out of the air and then you shoot them back in the face and your goal is for the most part to eliminate everybody in each of these small levels uh, all surrounding this mechanic of time only moves when you move but there is a whole another level of this game that you don't get just from watching people play it there's a whole story to this game and when you get to the end of that story it is so relevant to some of the things that we've talked about that I just there's no way for me to discuss it uh, in this podcast uh, without just ruining the whole thing. But play super hot. Think about story and first person games and mechanics like that. It's great. It shakes up the first person shooter genre. Personally, I would like to see more innovation like that in the future of uh, first person shooters. So um, this is where I'm going to bring up Proteus is in this in this part of the discussion. And uh, and you brought up Firewatch, and now you're bringing up Super Hot. I, I think that these kinds of games, the walking simulators, you know, in in the vein of Proteus and Firewatch, these are sort of a, a I think a reaction to the prevalence of first person shooters in the uh, the popular space of video games. Uh, I I think that Proteus is sort of going back to the origins of first-person gameplay design. You know, I, I, I kind of said jokingly earlier, you know, if uh, Maze War had been developed in Holland, you'd be giving each other flowers instead of shooting each other in the face. But I think Proteus is sort of an attempt to get back to those origins. And I think that's exemplified in the game's graphics, you know, in the, the pixel art, very simple graphical style. But that game is interesting because you're not interacting with the world through the use of a weapon, you're only interacting in that world through moving through it and looking at things and, and experiencing the world in, in that way. And I guess maybe the thing I'm saying is what I want from first person shooters in the future is to take away the, the shooter aspect. I'm not saying the same genre then like, that's <laughs> like, I know that we've talked about this a few times already, but no, it's, it's not, it's, it's definitely not. But I think that, if game designers and developers spent more time considering what you can do with a game besides just using a weapon to shoot enemies, that we would get a lot more experiences that uh, are interesting and unique. And, you know, in, in your case, Jared, with Firewatch, you know, that was a moving experience for you. And my, and my experience with Proteus was moving for me. And, while not first-person shooters, it, it shows what the first-person perspective can do, and I think that we're, I think that these are small steps in the right direction. I don't think that either of these games are the the perfect way to make a first-person game, but I, I think that it's showing that we as an audience are open and willing to have different kinds of first-person experiences that are not just kill everything. And it's great that so many indie studios are available now. They they can get their their stuff out there, as opposed to, you know, ten years ago, it was a, a lot harder to to break into the industry. So, 
I hope to see more innovation like that, like stuff like that's gonna it's gonna stand out, and um, I'm I'm excited for the future of that kind of thing. Yeah, and to, and to, I guess kind of bring the conversation back around to super hot, which I kind of uh, I don't know lazily lumped in with these other games is I think that that simple graphic style in super hot is kind of an attempt to do the same thing that Proteus was doing, which is like, look, we're going back to the beginning. We're going, we're, we're, we're taking it back to a simple graphical style so that we can reevaluate what it means to be a first person shooter. At Super least I high. hope that's, I hope that's what they were doing. You know, it, it may have been partly just sort of limitations on what they could do as a, as an indie title. But I think part of that was like, look, we're going to, we're going to break a first person shooter down into its, you know, most simple core components and, and look at it from a different direction. And I, I think that that's important as we, you know, as, as developers are moving forward in the industry and looking at what, you know, what we as the game players want. Although maybe all we want is more Call of Duty, you know, that seems to sell pretty well every year. Although I mean, the only lately, way to vote is with your dollar. Yeah. And I think lately they've been seeing a little dip in the sales of Call of Duty, which I'm hoping prompt some of these bigger developers to go the super hot route and reevaluate, you know, what it is that players want. Give try to give us something new and interesting. Okay, well, moving on to emails. If you have any questions or comments about first person shooters or any of our previous topics, you can send us an email. That's podcast at gbfeature.com, or you can connect with us on Twitter at gbfeature. Also, if you have any ideas for future topics, we're still taking recommendations on those just to kind of give people a little peek behind the curtain. We have a, we have a master list of, of topics. And uh, as people have been sending in ideas, I've been adding to that, to that list. So I, I appreciate getting feedback in that regards, but uh, Jared, why don't you go ahead and uh, read us one of our emails that we got? Yeah, I'll go ahead and read the uh, email that we got today. It was from Josh Ferguson in Arizona. He says, I just listened to the difficulty episode and I love the discussion. You mentioned Uncharted, and I was thinking a lot about my experience with the franchise. I never played any of them until I got my PS4 bundle, and I didn't really want to grind through the first game with frustrating encounters, so I played it on story mode. And if I'm, I'm not super familiar with the Uncharted series, but it was a, a, like a difficulty setting or something that you... I think when they re-released them for the bundle, they included a difficulty setting that was called story mode or something like that. Gotcha. that so you could just kind of like blow through yeah, it. Yeah, that just allowed you to yeah, easily dispatch with everyone and just get to the story stuff. So he says, so I played it on story mode. Uh, the second game I had heard was one of the best games ever, so I played it at normal difficulty. Story mode was nice, though, in a very rare situation where I was catching up on the franchise to play current installments. So yeah, that was like one of the instances where you just kind of wanted to get the gist of, of the game and he didn't want to have to deal with, um, you know, the, the rest of the gameplay parts of it. So, I mean, that kind of goes back to like, I'm, there are always reasons for people wanting to be able to change your difficulty. And I always support that freedom of choice. Uh, is, you know, so he mentions that he didn't want to uh, have any frustrating encounters. And the first Uncharted was full of frustrating encounters. But I think that that is, is more a problem with the initial design of that game. Like I, there, were, there were some parts of that game that I think even playing on like easy or normal difficulty, it was it was hard to get through it because of the way that that game was designed. And I don't know that uh, this gets into this situation. So, you know, there, there's this common argument that people make when they're talking about uh, 
you know, storytelling in games, which is, you know, why don't they just make a movie or why don't they just make the book of it? And I, I think the story mode in video games is in support of that argument, right? Like there's a, there's a problem with the game when the gameplay is the part that you want to avoid, right? Yeah, it kind of it kind of negates the whole reason of it being a video game at all. Yeah, so I this is I I've, ever since we did that episode, and we've got a lot of really great feedback from people on it. I've been really kind of grappling with my own opinions on on difficulty settings, but. I, the thing I keep coming back to is like, if your game is designed well, it shouldn't need difficulty settings. It should just, you know, naturally appeal to that, you know, the audience that will appreciate it for what it is. But I mean, you know, if, if you like the, the story of the Uncharted games, which, it, you know, it sounds like Josh here did, and story mode allowed you to enjoy that part without the frustration of the game getting in your way, then I... I guess that's good. I don't know. What do you think about that, Corey? You know, I, it, that that is just a really interesting thing. You know, I, it, it seems like one of the things we were talking about is that we want people to be able to be involved with these stories or things like that. And if the game play itself is almost pulling you out of that presence or pulling you out of that flow, that's an extremely, extremely big problem. I mean, the, the optimal experience, I mean, flow, the definition has the optimal experience. So having something that's difficult and not, not necessarily, cause I played difficult games before and there's a, there's a, there's a time where if something's difficult and it, it can increase your flow in the sense that you're more geared towards doing that or you're more geared towards passing it. But then there's something just with gameplay mechanics and the point where it's just difficult because it has frustrating game mechanics. If it's enough to pull you out of that story yeah, you have a very big problem. Yeah, and this actually goes back to something I, I think I mentioned in that episode, which was the the quote from the designer of Dark Souls, and he he distinguishes between the the concept of difficulty and frustration. That's a distinction that he makes um, that I thought was really interesting. So you know, we call it a difficulty setting in Uncharted, but maybe a better description is a frustration setting. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I, if you if the story mode uh, helped you enjoy that game more, good on you. There's a part of me that wants to say like, yeah, everybody should be able to enjoy things the way that makes them the happiest. But then there's like the curmudgeon in me that's like, no, it's it, this is art and it shouldn't be made for the masses. And then I just feel like I'm coming across as negative. So, well, I mean, different video games for different purposes, right? Like I, the same in the same way that I will go and enjoy a Transformers movie. Uh, name a Transformers movie you enjoy I don't I don't go to a Transformers movie looking for Citizen Kane and for the same you know in the same vein that I don't go to Uncharted for the extreme challenge of it and just because there's a difference of type of game you know doesn't make it a bad it doesn't make Uncharted a bad game because I'm not going to it for the gameplay necessarily no and this is like I enjoy the spectacle I enjoy the action yeah uh, versus something like Dark Souls, I go to that for a very specific reason, and I think that makes it a good game in its own right. You know, I I don't think just because Dark Souls is is difficult and it, it achieves a very specific objective that that diminishes what Uncharted does gameplay wise. All right, well that's going to do it for listener feedback. Again, you can always send your emails to us uh, at podcast at gbfeature.com. And that's going to do it for this episode of Game Breaking Feature. 
Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Corey Pavlich. Corey, thank you so much for being here, man. Um, it's, it's, it's actually been a, a blast. I, there's definitely been uh, some moments where you, uh, you kept us on track <laughs> and corrected some of our <laughs> language. And, uh, that's the kind of stuff that we need on this podcast. Cause otherwise, uh, Jared and I are, we're lost in the dark. No, I was happy. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I really think what you guys are doing and being able to talk about this kind of stuff from both an academic, a professional, and educational, and just simply just the love of video games. It's it's really awesome to find other people that are that psyched about video games. So thank you so much. Yeah, man, not a problem. Now, where can people find the uh, the work that you've published? Where can people keep up with the uh, the study that you're currently working on? Um, so you can check out my personal website, which is coreypavlich.com. Um, you're on there, you can you're feel free to contact me, but it's also coreypavlich at gmail.com, and I'd be more than happy to share some ideas uh, with people. Those are the, probably the best two places you can find some of my work. All right, cool, man. Well, as a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, please head over to iTunes and give us a review. This week, I'm actually going to make a special request of the, uh, the people that listen to this podcast and uh, ask that... Uh, if you know someone who likes video games or likes talking about video games, uh, please, you know, share this share this podcast with them. Um, yeah, we don't pay to advertise at all, so uh, word of mouth is is everything to us. Yeah, I mean, more important than anything, I think, uh, you know, if if you really really want to help us out, just you know, send someone a link or or um, you know, share our our Facebook post or something, because uh, that would really help expand our audience, and then you know, hopefully allow us to keep getting great guests like Corey on here. I also want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. And I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, I'll catch you guys later. Thanks for everything, Steve. Yep. Corey, thanks. good to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, you guys too.